Father, I thank you for uh, my, my friend and my brother, Kent, and I thank you for each of the men who have, have shared their testimonies with us, and uh, we believe you're calling to, to shepherd your church here at just this, this critical time in the life of, of uh, our body. And we recognize that all good things come from you, and so we recognize that, that you have, have raised up these men, uh, not because of anything we've done, but by your grace. And so I, I pray that you would help our church as we as we discern your will in this matter. We pray that you would work in the hearts of of the elders in our church, the men who are considering becoming elders, you confirm your calling uh, through your people and in their lives. We pray that you protect us and shepherd us as the great shepherd. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 4. We continue reading about Jesus' ministry here in the Gospel of Luke. If you would stand with me as we look at Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. Verse 31, and he went down in, to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick or very, with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out crying, You are the Son of God, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. Verse 42, And it was, when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, as always, for your word, for the authority that it possesses. We thank you for your son, Jesus, and the great authority that, that he has over every area of our lives. And we pray that you would transform us with your truth this morning. We pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. How do you determine who the authoritative voices in your life will be? We're all called on a daily basis to make a, a variety, of, variety of decisions. Lots of voices are speaking into our lives concerning the right choices to make. How do you determine whose voices will carry more weight than other people's voices? For example, when it comes to your medical decisions, 
there are a lot of ways that you can make decisions about what you're going to do for your physical health. For example, I read this week that 70% of Americans now turn to the internet and believe it is a, a reliable source of information. I got that off of the internet uh, as well. Uh, some people turn uh, to celebrities. Uh, Newsweek last year ran an article about Oprah and how she is an amazingly influential voice in the health decisions that people make. In January of last year, Suzanne Summers came on her show and talked about the decisions that she makes for her health care. She takes some, you know, 60 pills a day of this and that and various kind of other little bizarre things. And as she's on the show with Oprah, she ta- starts talking about the medical establishment, the medical community. She says that she doesn't trust doctors because doctors and medical schools and the media are all in the pockets of uh, pharmaceutical companies. And so she doesn't believe traditional doctors. She says, look, I've spent thousands of hours researching these things. I've written 18 books, and so people should listen to me, and many people do. Now, if you're like me, and uh, thousands of hours of, of studying a topic is not that convincing, compared to the medical community, the traditional medical community that has hundreds of millions of hours of studying topics, uh, and you say, well, I'm going to go the more traditional form of uh, medical advice from the traditional medical community, even there you're presented with a, a myriad of authorities and options. My dad, is, as many of you know, is undergoing some uh, cancer treatments right now, and as he decides what forms of, of treatments to engage in and, and how to treat his cancer, there's a lot of different opinions out there about the, the best way to treat cancer. I was reading an article from the Oxford Journal, and they talked about how tens of thousands of children, infants, died because the medical community failed to uh, caution parents soon enough to place their children on their, their backs to sleep, their infant children on their backs to sleep. They're, the point is this. When it comes to your medical care, the decisions you're going to make on a daily basis about what you do, what vitamins you take, what vitamins you don't take, what doctors you go to, what doctors you don't go to, there are a variety of voices speaking into your life claiming to be authoritative. How do you make a decision as to who will be your source of authority? And that's just one area of your life. On a given day, there are a myriad of decisions you're going to need to make, and who is going to be or who will be your authoritative voice or voices that say this is the way to live? I believe in our postmodern culture, we are starving spiritually for authoritative voices. For voices that say this is the way to live. This is how things are, and this is how you should live in this world. I believe in our postmodern culture, a culture that rejects authority in many ways and is suspicious of authoritative claims, I believe that many of us are just starving and hungry for a voice that says, this is the way to walk. And the amazing thing is that God in his word makes a very strong claim. A claim that for those of us who've grown up in a postmodern culture, a claim that seems very unsettling. God says, I am the authority. 
God claims that his authority is all-encompassing. And here, in Luke chapter 4, Luke presents us with one day in the life of Jesus Christ, from morning until evening. And as he looks at this one day in the life of Jesus Christ, what we see is that Jesus' authority over our lives is all-encompassing. That's what I believe is the central idea of the text that we're looking at together this morning here in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. As we see Jesus go through his day on a Sabbath day, we see that Jesus' authority over our lives is all-encompassing. There is no nook, there is no cranny, there is no crevice at which a person can point and say, Jesus' authority doesn't extend into this area. Jesus' authority is all-encompassing. We're going to look at four truths related to Jesus' all-encompassing authority. And let's go ahead and dive into the text right now. The first truth that we see is that Christ's authority is revealed in his word. Christ's authority is revealed in his word. Please look at the text with me. Verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And so Capernaum is at a lower level than the surrounding regions. He goes down into this city of Capernaum. Capernaum serves as a home base for Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. It's on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. He goes down to that city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. Remember, we saw Jesus engaged in a teaching ministry last week as well. Jesus goes into the synagogue of Capernaum, and again he sits down, and he begins to teach them. And as we look at the other Gospel accounts that describe Jesus' teaching, what is he teaching them about? He's probably talking to them about the kingdom of God. He's talking to them about repentance and how a person needs to repent in order to enter the kingdom of God. He's talking to them about the Messiah and about the necessary faith and belief that a person needs to place in the Messiah. And he's talking to them and he's teaching them. And what do we see about their reaction to his teaching? We see that as they listen to him teach, they are astonished. There's something about Jesus' teaching that surprises them. And what is it? What does the text say there in verse 32? It says that he's teaching them as one with authority. The type of teaching that the people are used to is not an authoritative teaching. In fact, keep your finger there in Luke and turn back to Matthew chapter 15. And let me just give you one example. The people are used to not teaching a, teaching from the text, but more teaching about the text. The Pharisees and the scribes and the people who engage in teaching the people, the popular teachers of the day, uh, are teaching a filtered message. Let me give you an example here. Verse 15, uh, uh, Matthew 15, verse 1, says that Pharisees and scribes come to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they ask him this question, why do your disciples break their tradition, listen to that, Why do they break the tradition of the elders? They do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, normally I'd be with the Pharisees on this one. I'm a big hand-washing advocate, right? What they're talking about, though, is a ceremonial washing. It was a very elaborate process by which a person was supposed to wash their hands. And they're, they're saying, your disciples are breaking the tradition of the elders. When a Pharisee or a scribe taught They didn't teach necessarily Scripture. They taught interpretation of Scripture. There was an elaborate legal code, orally, that had been developed to describe God's teaching. So, for example, if 
we are talking about the Sabbath day and how you shouldn't work on the Sabbath day. A person who's teaching, a scribe or a Pharisee, wouldn't just say, don't work on the Sabbath. They would talk about the, the 40 save one. The 40 save one was this oral law, this oral code of 39 different categories of work. And they would talk about how you shouldn't do this, and you shouldn't do that, and you shouldn't do this. And they would talk about their tradition that had been established and not about God's word. Jesus comes into the synagogue, and imagine being there in the synagogue and getting ready to listen to the same old litany of traditions. Jesus comes into the synagogue, and he says, this is what God's word says. Look at Matthew 15 again. They ask, why do your disciples break their tradition the elders? Jesus answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. Here are the, the Pharisees and they're asking, why do your disciples break their traditions? And he's saying, why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? And Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. Verse 7, you're hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You can go back to Luke chapter 4 now. Jesus, as he sits in the synagogue and teaches, is getting to the heart of the matter. And as the people listen to him teach from God's word, listen to his message, there is astonishment. There's something different about this guy's teaching. The Pharisees and the scribes' teaching had lost its relevancy. It had lost its relevancy, not because it was boring, although it was. It had lost its relevancy because it was no longer God's word. I'll read a quote from you, a quote for you, not from you. Hopefully this is not from you, about preaching. It's from a book called Barchester Towers, written in the late 1800s. This is what it says. There is perhaps no greater hardship at present inflicted on mankind in civilized countries than the necessity of listening to sermons. No one but a preaching clergyman, I like that phrase, no one but a preaching clergyman has the power of compelling an audience to sit silent and be tormented. A member of parliament can be shouted down. Town councilors can be tabooed. But the nightmare of this age is the preaching clergyman. He's the bore that disturbs our Sunday's rest, the demon that overloads our religion and makes service of God unacceptable. Again, I hope that's not quoting you. But what is he saying there? You know, that preaching has, has lost its relevancy. In the late 1800s, as this guy thought about the preaching that he was getting in church, he said, there's nothing there for me. It's a bore. David Butrak, in his book on homiletics, on preaching, asks the question, in our culture, why do preachers preach? What's the point? Uh, Dr. Albert Moeller from Southern Seminary says this, and I believe he's exactly right. He says, at the, at the end of the day, preachers preach because God has spoken. Why do we preach? We preach because God has spoken. At our church, why do we engage in preaching of God's word? We engage in preaching of God's word because God has spoken. The text is our authority, and our goal as we teach God's word is to make sure that we answer that question, why are we preaching correctly? We preach not because we want to entertain 
We preach not because we believe it's our, our duty to amuse you for 30, 40, 45 minutes or so. We preach because we have a conviction that God has spoken. And it's the word in which he's spoken, and it's our task to what we call exposit, to explain what the meaning of that text is and apply it in our lives today. We preach, we teach, because God has spoken. It's kind of a radical idea in our culture, isn't it? Oftentimes, we ask the question, why preach, and come up with some very clever or creative answers, and as a result, we fail to answer the question correctly and fail to explain God's word rightly. Oftentimes, a person will come into a church that's preaching what we call expositionally and will be surprised at the authority in the text, not the authority of the person preaching, I hope, but the authority that's inherent in God's word. Let me give you a little bit of a, of a personal example of this principle that the preacher preaches because God has spoken, not because the preacher has something to say. Monday night, you know, I, pre- I preached last Sunday, and then uh, Monday night I kind of began my preparation for uh, this morning. Uh, Tuesday is kind of my main study day, and uh, I found that I can kind of get ahead on Tuesday if I begin Monday night. Eventually, I'm just going to start studying right now, but... Uh, so I start Monday, and my belief, and I have no authority for this, my belief is that if I begin Monday night, maybe I'll kind of sleep on it and, and think about some things and be ahead on Tuesday morning. I have no authority beyond the Internet for that. But uh, anyway, that's what I do. Okay. Monday night, I had a very unpleasant experience. I'm, st- I'm uh, opening my, my Bible, and I'm beginning to read the text for this morning. And as I read the text, I, I get this sinking feeling in my stomach, literally. I just feel, oh, like someone had punched me in the gut. And out loud, I said, oh, dear. And Whitney said, what's wrong? I said, "Uh, I may have to recant on Sunday morning. She goes, what do you mean? And I'm not going to go into the exact issue this morning, but essentially what had happened is this. As I was reading the text for this morning, I thought I saw something that contradicted what I had said yesterday, the day before, last week, which is a very unpleasant feeling. I said, I don't know. What exactly I said, but as I read this text, I think I might have said something yesterday that isn't exactly right. She said, what are you going to do? I said, well, I don't know what else to do. I've got to tell people next week that I messed up. <laughs> Why would I have to do that? Now, we're all, I'm obviously a, a human, fallible, and so there's going to be times I say minor things that may not be exactly right. I'm not every week going to go through a litany of those. But when I've come to the text and explained something in a wrong way, I believe I have the responsibility to let people know, hey, I've interpreted this wrongly. Why? Because it's not my message ultimately, right? We preach because God has spoken, and Jesus, who understood God perfectly, has the ability to exposit the text exactly right. Now, what happened by God's grace is this. I listened to the message later in the week, And as I listened to the section in which I thought I had said something, God in his grace prevented me from saying it, okay? Which is why I'm not recanting this morning. (laughs) And if you want to know, I can go into the issue, what wasn't a major point of the text, it was a minor point of the text, and I I felt like I had missed it. God in his grace allowed me to preach only what was there and not what I had uh, originally thought about, about saying there. 
What's the point? The point is this. Jesus' authority is revealed in his word. And as he goes to the word, explains the text, people are amazed at his teaching. He's authoritative. Let me give you some applications here. Three applications as we think about Christ's authority being revealed in his word. First application is this. Uh, don't settle for non-authoritative teaching. <laughs> Quite frankly, if you're going to a church or you're going involved in, in a teaching situation in which a person is merely trying to entertain or amuse, there's better sources of entertainment than the church. <laughs> you can stay home on Sunday morning and watch cartoons and get more entertainment value out of it if that's what you're searching than from a sermon. Don't settle for non-authoritative teaching. A second application here, uh, don't rely solely upon teachers. Uh, Christ's authority is derived from his word, and he has the ability as the son of God to speak his own word perfectly. The teachers in your life don't have that ability. This past week, maybe you've seen the stories about things that are going on in the Roman Catholic Church. I believe that is inevitable as you place undue authority upon a person instead of God. Don't rely solely upon teachers. It's good to surround yourself with teachers who love God, understand his word, and can explain it. But don't rely solely on teachers. Take what teachers teach you and go to the authoritative source. Third application, search God's authoritative word. Engage in those disciplines of Bible study, Bible memorization, internalization of the text that's going to allow you to find the authority, the ultimate authority of your life that God's word possesses. Second point is this, God's, about Christ's authority, Christ's authority is resisted by the demonic realm. Look at verse 33. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, and there's a man there who had the, un, the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cries out as Jesus is teaching with a loud voice. Now, sometimes as I've been preaching or teaching, there have been a distraction. A, a child may have cried out with a loud voice, or a cell phone may have cried out with a loud voice. Last week, in fact, I was up here t- uh, preaching, and as I was preaching, I heard a cell phone going off and uh, realized it was mine, which... It was a very uncomfortable feeling of beeping, reminding me that there was communion last Sunday, which is not that helpful when I'm up here already. Uh, lots of distractions that can take place in a Sunday morning service. Jesus is teaching, and the source of his distraction, the source of the opposition as he's teaching, is the demonic realm. Jesus, as he proclaims the coming kingdom of God, encounters a spiritual force here. Look what happens. As he's teaching, this person with a, with a demon cries out, Ha! What have you to do with this Jesus of Nazareth? That word ha is not a mocking ha. It's a ha born of fear. Absolute, total, complete fear out of his demonic mind. Why? Because Jesus is teaching about the coming kingdom of God. And demons know they are living on borrowed time. Jude and Second Peter both talk about how some demonic forces are already uh, in bondage, awaiting eternal judgment. Demons know that the eternal lake of fire is their ultimate end. The demonic realm is frightened of Jesus. It is not some sort of spiritual battle where demons are giving it their best shot and they think, man, we could take this guy if we really all bind together. Demons are scared of Christ. 
And as the coming kingdom of God is proclaimed through preaching, the demonic realm is frightened. And this demon, I'm not sure if the demonic, uh, demonically possessed man knew about Jesus or understood what was happening. He finds himself in the synagogue. The kingdom of God is proclaimed, and the demon gets scared. Ah! What are you doing here? Are you, have you come to destroy me now? And Jesus, with his authoritative word, says, be silent and come out of him. The demon had thrown him down in their midst. He comes out of him and he, does he put up a fight? He says he's having done him no harm. The reports about Jesus spread. Notice what the people say as they see him do this. They say, uh, what is this word? What is this message? Look at the authority Christ's word has. It's with authority and power. He commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about Jesus continues to circulate. Let me give you a couple observations here as we think about Christ's authority being resisted by the demonic realm. Uh, first of all, I believe that Scripture speaks of individuals who are influenced or, or possessed by, by demons. That is, there are demonic forces that have the ability to control the actions at times of people we see in Scripture. Another observation, I'm going to give here maybe five or six or seven observations here about just demonic influence here. Another observation is that those who are around people who are possessed by demons realize it. Nowhere in Scripture do we see a person taking someone else to Jesus and saying, Jesus, uh, this is either a toothache or a demon. I'm not sure which. I thought we'd cover both bases just to be on the safe side. Now, they understand when a person, at least Christ does, understands when demonic possession is taking place. Another observation here is that as, as, we, as we look at uh, the people who are possessed by demons or indwelled by demons, is there's a, usually a certain lucidness to their thoughts. Oftentimes, I think we have this Hollywood perception of demonically possessed people. You know, they're shooting flames out of their mouths and their heads are turning around and they're babbling some sort of strange thing. Uh, here we see the demonic forces have certain lucidness of thought. This demon hears the proclamation of Christ's kingdom and gets pretty freaked out about it, and logically, rightly so. Another observation about the demonic realm is this. Uh, we see a high period of demonic activity in Scripture in the Gospels. We don't see a lot of demonically possessed people in the Old Testament. The only example might be Saul. And it doesn't say possessed. Uh, Genesis 6 talks about it as well. But you don't see a high level acti of activity in the Old Testament or following the ministry of Christ and the apostles. Another observation I would make about demonic possession is that believers cannot be demon-possessed. I would base this on Ephesians chapter 2. Colossians 1.13 says that, Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. We know that we're indwelled now by the Holy Spirit. I encourage you to look at 2 Corinthians 6, 1 John 4, 4. And so I don't believe that it's possible that, that believers can be possessed by demons. Another observation here, though, is that as we think about the spiritual realm, you and I as believers are still susceptible to demonic forces, the influences of, of darkness. We see that in Ephesians as well. 
Another observation here, as we've already talked about, demons are in complete, total fear of Jesus Christ. Their doom is assured. Now, I believe there are two extremes then that we as believers, as we think about Christ's authority over the demonic realm, there are two extremes we need to be careful of. One is just to be completely complacent about the demonic realm. We say, well, you know, that's you know, the demon thing, that's, that's uh, in the gospel accounts, not too worried about it. Okay? There's a story by Voltaire called Candide. And in Candide, there's a character in Candide named Dr. Pangloss. And Dr. Pangloss is this, this foolish old guy who's always uh, spouting out optimistic phrases, saying that we live in the, the best of all possible worlds. And as he slowly loses different parts of his body and terrible things happen to him, he keeps on saying, this is the most wonderful world that, that exists. And in fact, uh, someone falls in front of him into the ocean and drowns. He goes, isn't it wonderful that this harbor was created so this person would have a place to drown in? Okay, we don't want to have a Panglossian view of the world <laughs> where we don't, acknowledge that there are bad, evil, demonic forces out there. But the other extreme is to be so frightened and so concerned of the demonic realm that we become immobilized. I was talking to a believer, several believers actually, who sometimes said, you know, I'm, I'm scared of what might happen if I'm ever attacked by demons or if I ever encountered demonic forces. And I said, what do you mean if? <laughs> right? But we are already engaged in a spiritual struggle. A spiritual struggle that's not just against flesh and blood. Two extremes. So let me give you some counsel that I believe may help you as you think about exercising Christ's authority over the demonic realm. You know, those of you who want to be uh, uh, involved in or, or thinking about your involvement in the spiritual struggle. One a suggestion, one point of application here is first of all, understand you're already engaged in a spiritual struggle. You are already engaged in spiritual warfare. It's not something you can either opt in or opt out of. A second point of application here is we think about how to encounter the demonic realm, the spiritual realm, is understand that nowhere in Scripture are you explicitly commanded to be involved in, in exorcisms, for example. Sometimes uh, people uh, who are involved in, in what they call deliverance ministries, believe that their, their call by God is to deliver people from, from demons, and everything is demon possession. Look, I, nowhere in Scripture do I find any command for a believer to be involved in exorcisms. I don't see that in Scripture. My belief is that if it were an instruction by God, I would have some sort of guidelines to give you this morning. But I have no biblical guidelines to help you determine how to realize if a person is demon-possessed or what you would do if you found, encountered a person like that. We have descriptions, but nothing prescribed by God in this word. And so uh, I would say uh, nowhere in Scripture I find a command uh, compelling me to be involved in exercising demons. Yet, I would also add this as a point of application. Number three here as points of application. I have an authoritative word from Christ that's not my own, and I use the resources that God has provided me and instructed me in as I encounter the spiritual world. My goal is to be involved in prayer for people, especially people who I believe are in the, the grip of the enemy. My goal is to be engaged in, in reading God's word to protect myself from deceptions from the enemy. I'm engaged in internalizing his word, as we've already talked about, through memorization and, and study of his word, so that I have the tools necessary that God has told me about in his word to encounter the demonic realm. 
You see the difference there? I'm not ignorant that there's a spiritual struggle. Uh, neither am I, uh, you know, practicing ghostbusters, doing kind of some crazy stuff in order to counter, encounter the demonic realm that God hasn't told me to do. Now, I, I leave open the possibility that someday you may encounter a person who is demon-possessed, and how do we deal with that? Well, I deal with it the way that Christ did. Right? It becomes obvious, then through uh, the command in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's that provision, but nowhere in Scripture am I commanded to be seeking that out. Another point of application, finally, here, number four, is that just I need to have confidence that I will prevail in spiritual struggles. Nowhere is it even close in Scripture between the demonic realm and, and Christ. His authority is complete and absolute. Let's look here next, then, about Christ's authority. We see that Christ's authority is realized in the physical realm. Look at verse 38. Verse 38 says that he, again, we're looking at one day in the life of Christ after the uh, incident there in the synagogue, as people are amazed at his authority and his abilities, he gets up, and like any good person after church, he goes to have lunch. It says he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house, now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. We see here, we're going to see that Christ's authority is realized in the physical realm. Christ's authority is not relegated only to the spiritual realm, but as he encounters a physical need, Christ's authority is absolute over that as well. It says that he, that he stood over her, rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them as they had their lunch. Notice here, as we continue on in, the, in this story, the link between the physical and the spiritual. Christ's authority has already been demonstrated over the spiritual, but notice here, as they see encounter a physical problem, people appeal to him, asking him to enter in the physical realm as well. And now, as you continue through this, this part of the story, both the physical and the spiritual kind of become intermingled, and Christ is exercising total, complete authority over both realms. It says that they, the sun was setting the end of the day here. And all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. His power, his authority is absolute. Verse 41, very interesting here. Demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Very interesting there. As the demons come out and they're professing that he's the Christ. You think, well, that's a little different. <laughs> Wouldn't they want to be saying, you're not the Christ? <laughs> They're proclaiming his name, and Jesus tells them to be silent because remember where, his, where he is, how he's teaching the people. He's going to God's word and teaching people from God's word a right understanding of the kingdom and a right understanding of the Messiah. And it's not going to be until after the resurrection that he's able to fully proclaim who he is and the relationship between his ministry and how people should respond to it. Christ's authority here is realized completely over the physical realm. Why is it important to acknowledge Christ's authority in this area? I believe it's important to acknowledge Christ's authority in this area because so often we're consumed with just asking God for spiritual things or just asking God for physical things as we understand that Christ's authority is over both areas, it affects the ways that we appeal to him. This last week, uh, Whitney's uh, sister and her sister's husband 
uh, were able to, to join us here. They're, they're here this morning, and uh, they're, they're from Texas, and I welcome them to Illinois by uh, backing into their car. Okay. Now, uh, that's a physical problem, all right? My response was spiritual. Okay. As I looked at this, uh, the damage that I, very slight damage, guys, uh, the damage that I had caused to their car, there was a, a spiritual struggle. Boy, why does this have to happen? And you've encountered this as well. Your problems are nearly are never just physical or just spiritual. They, those two areas of your life tend to intermingle very quickly. And as I, I went through the morning, I thought, boy, I just I didn't want this to happen. God's provisions for us are not just physical. They're not just spiritual. It's all-encompassing. Christ's authority here is manifested, it's realized in the physical realm, God cares for both the physical and the spiritual needs. Here's the way that I would apply this truth as we think about Christ's authority being realized in the physical realm. My encouragement to you this week as you pray for people is to do this. Write down the physical needs that people in your life have. Maybe it's a a mother-in-law who's who's sick or your, your dad who's who's ill, or your sister who's going through a difficult time, or a a person in our church who's who's struggling with an illness or some sort of physical need. And I encourage you to do this, and and do this in your Sunday school classes as well when you pray for people, and I know many of you already do this. Ask specifically for God's healing in those areas, but also understand what are the physical, what are the spiritual problems that God could be addressing through this physical situation as well. When we encounter physical difficulties in life, we have confidence that God is not a God who's only concerned about the spiritual, but he's concerned about impacting our physical world as well. Ask yourself, what is it that God is trying to teach me, trying to communicate through this aspect of my life and the lives of the people that I'm praying for? Then finally, a Christ's authority, fourthly, we see Christ's authority is recognized by all. Look at verses 42 through 44. It says that when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving him. Uh, Imagine you have this guy in your hometown who has the ability to completely heal any diseases. Not a guy you'd really want to leave very soon. And the people are thinking about compelling him to stay. And you say, at the surface, guys, listen to this, at the surface, it looks like what we looked at last week, there's a vast difference of response this week. Last week, they're getting ready to throw this guy off a cliff. This week, they won't let him leave. He said, well, those people are responding completely differently to the Christ. And I tell you, yes and no. Personally, I'd prefer the second response. But both responses reveal a failure to understand the full nature of Christ's kingdom ministry. It says Jesus has to say to them, look, I have to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Christ's authority must be recognized by all, and the people here don't recognize his all-encompassing authority. What they want is this little genie that will stay in their town and do what they ask him to do. Christ's authority is an all-encompassing authority that calls every person in the universe, in the world, to acknowledge that authority. 
And the people of Capernaum don't get it. But someday, Scripture assures us, this all-encompassing authority of Jesus Christ is going to be recognized by every human being. Someday, every knee will bow before Christ. And our goal now, as Jesus was, is to proclaim the kingdom of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, so that our hearts will bow in submission and authority to him now and not at some later date. When it's too late to experience the salvation that submitting to his authority provides. Christ's authority is an all-encompassing authority. There is no nook, there is no cranny, there is no crevice that we can say, your authority stops here. Christ's authority is an all-encompassing authority. And the call that Luke gives us here as we look at one day in the life of Jesus, morning, afternoon, late in the day, is to bow in submission to the authority of Christ who holds the physical, the spiritual, the demonic realm all within his control. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the ability to read it. We thank you for the authority of your son, Jesus. We pray that as we stand in your presence, that you would cause us to bow. We pray that if there are those who have not placed their faith in your son, Jesus, for the forgiveness of their sins, that today would be the day of salvation. We pray this in his name, for your glory. Amen.